0: series is seven simple prayers that can change your life and we are coming in for the home stretch this is part 6 of 7 and again because this is a teaching series and we're trying to learn and grasp and remember the word we're going to do a little bit of review this is the scripture where we've uh, launched every week. It came to pass that as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, he just finished praying and one of his disciples came over to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And again, we've mentioned this every week and I know you remember this well. They didn't say Jesus teach us how to pray. They weren't looking for a method so much. They weren't looking for a pattern so much. They had watched Jesus pray and it seemed to be so easy and so natural. And so they said, teach us to pray. Teach us about what you feel and what you sense. It's, it's more about the motivation than the method. It's more about having the passion to pray than just a plan to pray. And uh, prayer is simply that. It is a conversation with God. Uh, When you pray, you're not trying to impress God. You can't. Um, You're not trying to impress other people, hopefully. Um, That's why you need to pray more privately than you do publicly. And I'm grateful that we pray together publicly, and I'm grateful that we ask people to lead us in prayer, but my goodness, your conversation with God, your running ongoing conversation is the important part of your prayer life, not just what people see when you're at church. And so in this series, we're following two things. We're following the phrases of the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew, and we're following the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and we boil them down to seven simple prayers. In fact, seven one-word prayers. We started here, our Father which art in heaven, and paired it with Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the very first prayer we encounter is probably the most instinctive prayer, perhaps. It is the heartfelt cry of a child to their father. It is a confession of need. It is the way we first come to God. And does anybody remember that prayer? Help, that's the most instinctive expression when we're in trouble. The psalmist said, help me, O Lord, my God. Oh, save me according to thy mercy. And so it's right and it's good and it's proper when you get in trouble, when you're feeling the pinch, when, when you've got stress upon you to say, help me, O Lord. That's a biblical prayer. Everybody say help. And then we went to this phrase, hallowed be thy name, and paired it with Jesus' statement, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Go in and out and find pasture. When you hallow something, you set it apart with how you describe it. So when you hallow God's name, what you do is you worship him. Because worship is the door to God's presence. And the easiest and most instinctive and most natural form of worship is one word. Anybody remember? Remember? thanks. When you say, thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you, God, for your blessings. That unlocks the door into God's presence. It's right and good to give thanks unto the Lord. The Psalm 100, very familiar. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Literally, your thanks to God is like a password that gets you into his presence. And since we're in church and we're studying his word and we're in his presence and among his people, it would be good to use the password of thanksgiving for a moment and just lift up a little bit of praise to the Lord. If you can't think of anything else, thank him for enough strength and health to be in his presence tonight. Thank him for what he's blessed you with this week. It's a good day to serve God. It's a great week to be serving Jesus. And we went from there to these phrases, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And paired it with Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. Jesus said that he is the light of the world. But if you read the Gospels very long, you'll find out that he also said that we, the church, we are the light of the world. He provides the power, but the church is like the switch that turns on the power. If you go back to the back of this room and you hit the light switch, it's not about the switch. It's about the power that runs through the switch to the light and the light comes on. And so you are the switch that turns God's promises into something that can be brought to earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Anybody remember that prayer? Yes, God, I don't see your kingdom being uh, fulfilled. I don't see your will being done. So I'm going to stand here and claim your promise. And I'm going to say yes to your word and yes to your will. Paul said all of the promises of God in Jesus are... Yes, in Jesus, all of the promises of God are amen. One or two modern paraphrases literally say Jesus is God's yes. When you see Jesus and when you see what he did and when you see what he claimed to be and what he taught, he is God's yes to everything that you need. Somebody say yes. And then we talked about these phrases, give us this day our daily bread. And of course, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never hunger. If you believe on me, you'll never thirst. Praying for our daily bread is not saying, God, give me, give me what I want. It is simply saying, God, I've got needs, and I'm bringing you my needs. So it's not give me what I want as much as it's, God, would you please give me what I need? But it goes further than that. It's not saying, God, I want everything on my shopping list. It's not that. It's saying, Jesus, you are at the top of my list, and I want you to have the preeminence in my life. And if you are the top, then everything else is going to fall into place. And so we learned a simple one-word prayer, because give us this day our daily bread is not a demand for more. It is a declaration of enough. First Timothy chapter six, Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a wonderful thing to live a godly life, live a holy and righteous life according to God's commandments. But can I tell you, there are lots of godly people that are absolutely grumpy and miserable. They are baptized grouches, but you don't need to be that. We don't don't need that kind of of, of representative of Jesus' church in our wonderful city. What we need is some people that say, I may not have everything, but because I've got God, I've got enough. Godliness with contentment, you're going to be as happy as a clam. It's going to be fine because you've got God. I don't know how many times I've walked into a hospital room or somebody that's sick and afflicted, and you think, my goodness, Jesus, help me be an encouragement to this person. And you walk away thinking, my word, I'm blown away by how positive they are, how happy they are, and they're encouraging me. You know why? Godliness with contentment. I've learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content, Paul said. Now, last week, we waded into the deep weeds with these statements. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we paired it, strangely enough, with Jesus' statement, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Many times, the only fix, the only repair for your relationship with God when it gets off track And the only fix, the only repair for your relationship with anybody else, when it gets off track, is one simple word, and we can pray it to God. Anybody remember? That word is sorry. When we pray that word to God, he always prunes sin from our lives. And when we say that in our relationships, it helps us down here too. You see, Jesus made what you pray to God conditional on what you say to others. Sometimes God brings people into your life just to prune you. Sometimes God anoints people with a sandpaper anointing. And they just kind of, they grit and grate on you. But here's what Jesus said. He said, if you forgive men their trespasses, when you forgive others, when when you say, I'm sorry that happened, but I'm not letting that affect our relationship. When you say that, what you do is you open the floodgate for God to give his forgiveness to you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So everybody say, sorry. Sorry. And maybe you need to turn to the person next to you because you had a fight on the way here. So just turn to the person next to you. It might clear the air. Everybody look at the person somewhere near you and say, sorry. Now, my American friends, they make fun of how I say sorry. Because in America, you say sorry. And I keep telling them sorry is what an Indian woman wears over in India or Pakistan. That's a sorry. We say it right. Canadians, sorry. Yeah, there we go. No, we're not protesting America. (laughs) In ancient times, shepherds were not usually owners of the flocks that they tended. But while they didn't own the flocks, they were expected to have the same care and the same concern for the sheep as the owner would. And that's why the Bible makes a strong contrast between a good shepherd and what the Bible calls a hireling. Hirelings thought only of themselves. Hirelings thought only of getting their wages. And so when a wolf appeared, which was the most common enemy of the sheep, the hirelings just abandoned the flock and they ran off. They fled. And that was dangerous because sheep are not survivors. They are not strong or independent creatures. Sheep are not proud hunters or fierce predators. That's not a sheep. Just about any other domesticated animal, you can take them and return them to the wild, a cat or a dog, and they'll at least stand a fighting chance of survival, but not a sheep. If you take a domesticated sheep and you put it back in the wild, you just gave something or someone a snack. That's what you did. You've heard about the fight or flight instinct. Well, sheep can't do either. They can't run very fast and they got nothing to fight with. And that's why nobody in this room has a guard sheep tending your house while you're at Bible study tonight. Nobody has a sheep to secure their property. All sheep can do when they get in danger is flock together and hope that the predator will pick somebody else before they get to them. That's a sheep's defense mechanism. Because sheep are so defenseless, they are totally dependent on a shepherd to protect them. That's why you need a good shepherd and not just a hireling. Sheep are not only defenseless, they're also quite directionless. You can put a flock of sheep in a perfect pasture. It can have everything they would ever desire, but sooner or later, they're going to wander off and get lost. That's why they need a shepherd. And sheep, in addition to being defenseless and quite directionless, can we just say this? Sheep are... Sometimes just plain dumb. There are documented cases. I read some of them. There are documented cases of hundreds of sheep following each other off a cliff to their death in the absence of a shepherd. You look over the cliff and it just looks like a big cotton ball down there. But they're all dead or wounded, dying, bleeding, They're just, it's just awful. That's sheep. Sheep are always subject to danger because they're quite defenseless, they're quite directionless, and they're often a little dumb. Do you know what animal God compares us to as saints in his pasture? Not cows, not useful cows, not magnificent horses. Not even sloppy pigs, thank God for that, but sheep. David killed a lion and a bear while defending his father's flock because that is the kind of commitment it took to be a good shepherd. It wasn't a glorious occupation to be sure. It was just long, lonely days and nights of burning heat and freezing cold. It was endless, tedious tasks, sometimes interrupted by moments of sheer terror when predators appeared. And that shepherd had to rise to the occasion to defend a flock that wasn't even his. He didn't own it. He just tended it. Shepherds were frequently subjected to extreme hazards and perils. And sometimes, you remember Jesus said this, sometimes a good shepherd would even lay down their life for the sheep. And that brings us to yet another simple prayer tonight found in the fabric behind these two verses. Jesus taught us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he also said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Nobody in human history exemplifies that verse, that phrase, that concept, even close to what Jesus did when he laid down his life for all of us. You see, without following the shepherd, the sheep cannot survive for very long. But if the sheep will stay within the boundaries imposed by the shepherd, they will be protected and they will flourish. So here's the point. If the shepherd says no, it is for their own good. If the shepherd says not over there, we're not going that direction, come back here. It's not to hurt them, it's to bless them. It's for their own good. For decades, social scientists have studied how humans learn to speak. We've studied it for decades. Talking is one of the biggest milestones that a baby will achieve in their first couple of years. Both parents and babies look forward to that milestone because once those little people can express themselves the easier their needs can be met, resulting in far less frustration for the parents and for the babies. Now, most babies, I know every baby that's ever been born at CCC was the most exceptional child, but most babies. So let's talk about average babies out there somewhere. Most babies begin babbling sounds around six months. And by nine months, they're beginning to understand and respond to commonly used words. And then, for most babies, sometime just after 12 months or so, parents can expect to hear their little ones say their first own distinguishable words for the very first time. Simple and repetitive words, they come first. And both mama and dada are high on the list of hopes and expectations. And parents wait anxiously to see which one of those repetitive sounds, mama or dada, which one of those are going to be said first. Because whoever the baby identifies first is obviously the most loved parent. (laughs) And unfortunately for mothers, the D sound is much easier for a human to make than the M sound. And so many times, it's actually uh, Dada. Typically, Mama is with the baby all day long, waiting on every need and want and desire. And he comes home. And the baby looks and says, Dada. It's just frustrating for mothers, but I've never been there, so... Now, it's interesting because while we anxiously await for one of those words to make its appearance, many parents, they report a different word as one of baby's first words. Not only because this word is easier to say, but because babies learning to navigate their world, they hear this word repeated so often. You see, like shepherds with sheep, One of the primary roles of a parent during their baby's pre-verbal months is simply to chase them around and keep them from doing things that they shouldn't do. And so there's a word that they just hear over and over. And that's why researchers at Stanford University who studied baby's first words, they found that yes doesn't even make the top 20 while no is always in the top 10. And we're learning that right now with the youngest grandchild in our family who shall remain absolutely cute and totally nameless. But she's learned how to say this word. It started kind of easy, and we've got video to prove it. You know, It started like, no. And then it became, no, 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 no. And we've even got video to prove that she's part rapper. Nobody know. (laughs) The talent runs deep in this family. There is a prayer that you can pray, even though you're a sheep in God's pasture. There's a prayer you can pray that will make you a spiritual survivor. It is simple, but it is so powerful. And if you pray it consistently, It will defend you against the enemy's attacks and it will direct you in the Lord's paths and it will even keep your flesh in check so you don't make a bunch of dumb mistakes. It will guard you from the danger of temptation and it will deliver you from the snares of the devil. It's one little tiny word, but it's a great big word and that word is just to look hell in the face and say no. "No." Absolutely no. No to the devil, no to the world, no to the flesh. And we talked about it just a couple of weeks ago. You need to pray yes to God's kingdom. And you need to pray yes to God's will. But in order to do that effectively, you've got to flip the coin and you've got to pray no to the devil's kingdom and no to the devil's will. You've got to pray no to the world, its kingdom and its will for you. And can I tell you the hardest part? You've got to learn to pray no to your little kingdom and no to your own will. No is not a burden or a bondage prayer. It's a blessing prayer. If you learn to say, no to the wrong things and you do it consistently enough it's going to open up windows in heaven and pour you out all kinds of blessings because when you say no to the devil you're saying yes to to God Abraham said no to the false gods of the Ur of the Chaldees and when Abraham said no he became the father of the faithful Joseph said no When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and he became the savior of many nations. Moses said no to the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt, and he became the deliverer of Israel. Ruth said no to everything she had ever known in her homeland of Moab, and she got to become the great-grandmother of King David." David said no to Saul's armor and Saul's weapons. And he became the champion who conquered the giant Goliath with just a single slingshot. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said no to worshiping a pagan idol. And the king threw them in a fiery furnace. And guess what? God showed up and walked with those Hebrew boys in the middle of the flames because they said no. Daniel said no to a royal decree against prayer. And the Lord miraculously delivered him from a den of lions. I love this verse. It's from a builder. He was amazing. There's a whole book in the Bible that's dedicated to him. His name is Nehemiah. And if it had not been for Nehemiah, they would have come back from captivity and the city would have been defenseless. But Nehemiah was used of God to build the walls. And in the middle of that, he had all kinds of opposition everybody criticizing him, everybody mocking him because the pagan nations around, they were afraid if Jerusalem ever get their walls back. They were afraid if that city ever got together and was protected. And so Nehemiah's job was so important, but he got nothing but grief for it. He had people trying to get him off track. He had people trying to distract him. He had people criticizing him, mocking him. And finally, one day, Nehemiah said, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. I am not coming down off this ladder. I am not coming down off this wall. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Now that's an ancient lesson from a guy that's been dead for more than 2500 years. But let me tell you something. There's always the voice of the world and the devil. There's always voices, distractions everywhere trying to tell you that what you're doing for God is not so important. So why don't you just take a break and why don't you just take it easy and why don't you come over here and why don't you forget your insistence on being such a faithful Christian and so involved in your church and why why don't you just chill for a little bit? And to that, the answer of the apostolic is, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down and chat with you. If you're a parent raising your kids, that's your great work. I am doing a great work. I am raising these kids to know God and love God. I'm doing a great work. I don't have time to mess with all the garbage of the world. If you're a single adult or a blessed senior in our church and you serve God make Maybe for years, and life hasn't given you everything pleasant. You've had some hard knocks and some hard times, but you're still faithful to God. You still love to get with your brothers and sisters at church. You still pray for your pastors. You still pray for the missionaries. You are valuable to the kingdom of God, and the devil will make you feel like trash. He'll make you feel useless and unwanted and unloved. He'll make you feel like your best days are so far back in the rear view mirror that you don't even matter anymore. You need to look him square in the face and say, I am still doing a great work for God. I can't run, but I can pray. I can't dance, but I can intercede. So I'm doing a great work. I am not leaving it to come down and talk to you. Nehemiah had the same spirit as Jesus when they gathered around the foot of the cross and they said he saved others himself he cannot save and they taunted Jesus if he be the king of Israel let him come down now from the cross and if he just comes down then we'll believe him but see Jesus attitude was this although I'm in agony although I'm suffering although I'm bleeding and I'm just hours from dying I will not come down. There's too much at stake. There's too much resting on my shoulders. I will not leave this work of redemption and come down just to prove myself to you. I wish that spirit could get all over the church of the living God in the year 2021 because there's all kinds of voices that will taunt you to try to make you think you should be given your one and only life to some other cause or some other uh, thing, what you need to do is say, wait a minute, I'm doing something for God. It's the most important facet of my life. Yes, I have a job. You know what? I I use my job to fund my ministry. My ministry is a prayer warrior. My ministry is a Sunday school teacher. My ministry is an usher. My ministry is something in the church. I use my secular job to fund my ministry. Don't ever get it messed up, devil. I am not just an accountant. I am not just a teacher. I am not just a garbage truck driver. I am a child of the living God. There's an anointing on me. I'm doing a great work and I will not leave it and come down to you. (laughs) Nehemiah and Jesus both said, no, I'm doing a great work. I'm not leaving it. I'm not coming down. Jesus even started his ministry with three no's in the wilderness The devil tempted him three times and every time Jesus said, no, it is written in the Word. I'm not getting outside of the Word. I'm not breaking the principles and the promises of the Word. I am not stepping outside of the covenant. You need a little bit of that in your spirit. I am not stepping outside what God says. If Jesus says it's good, it's good. If Jesus says don't touch it, I don't touch it because I'm under the covenant of His Word. So whatever temptation the devil throws at me, the answer has already been pre-decided. Whatever the world tries to throw at me, I already decided it years ago. Yes to Jesus, no to the flesh. Yes to Jesus, no to the world. Yes to Jesus, no to the devil. Every once in a while, you gotta square your shoulders and steal your backbone and lock your feet and look the devil in the eyes and say, absolutely not. No, no, no. And that brings us to prayer, because every once in a while, you got to pray this short little simple prayer. And you've got to pray it with intensity and passion and focus. And you've got to keep praying it until you feel something break and something loose and something let go. Sometimes when you are in the hour of temptation and listen, all you new believers, we all face the hour of temptation. I don't care if somebody's been serving Jesus for 50 years. Everybody faces the hour of temptation. Everybody faces dark nights of the soul when you're not feeling what you would love to feel. We all face that. But in those times, you're not praying yes to the devil. You're not saying, oh yeah, it's terrible. Yes, it's bad. Yes, I don't. No, don't don't agree with him. And don't agree with your dumb emotions because your emotions will take you right outside the church if you let them go too far. You just say, wait a minute, I'm doing a great work for God. I am not going to come down and have this dialogue. So the answer is no. The answer is no. When I'm in the middle of an hour of temptation, the answer is no. When my emotions want to take me into the deep, dark night of depression, the answer is no. When the devil comes against me like a flood of all kinds of opposition, I'm going to stand in the middle of the current and I'm going to stay there and I'm going to say no. Apostolic believers, we are not just equipped to entreat God, to ask him, We are equipped to enforce God's will on this planet. If God didn't need you here to pray, we could have baptized you and held you under, sent you straight to the new Jerusalem, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and you would have been fine, and we wouldn't have had you to worry about. Are they going to be okay? Are they going to backslide? Are they depressed? Are they still coming? We wouldn't have had to worry about any of that. But the reason you're still here and the reason we're glad you're here and God is glad you're here because you are equipped to pray in ways that stop the devil in his tracks when you say no to the power of the enemy and yes to the kingdom of God. So listen very carefully. This is the point tonight. Prayer is not just about begging and pleading. Far too many people, prayer becomes this emotional, three-hanky sob session. Please, God. And they're begging and pleading and crying. I'm not saying don't cry. I cry all the time. I cry at everything. I cry at YouTube videos, not cat videos, but other videos. I cry at everything. I'm not saying don't cry, but sometimes we make prayer this this weeping, wailing session. It's just pleading and begging. Prayer is not just about pleading and begging. Listen, prayer is about binding and loosing. That's what prayer is about. Guess what? Loosing is when you say, yes, thy kingdom come. And binding is when you say, no, devil, you're not allowed in here. You're not allowed in here. You're not allowed in here. No. So we have the authority to bind and loose. We have the authority to say no, and we have the authority to say yes. Jesus promised, you remember, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's in Matthew 16, 18. But that verse is irrevocably connected to the actions of the church in the very next verse, Matthew 16 and 19. Now, some people say, well, Matthew 16, 18 and 19, that was spoken to Peter. I'll give you that. But in Matthew 18, 18, two chapters later, Jesus says this very same thing, not just to Peter, but to all of the disciples. And by extension, he says it to you, not just Peter. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Listen, church, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, my goodness, I feel the power of God in this room tonight. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is your authority. You are empowered to bind and to loose, to say no to the devil and yes to God when you pray ancient custom was that the gates of a city functioned not only as defense, that's what we sometimes envision, but the gates of the city functioned as the place of public discourse. The gates of the city functioned as the place where judgments were pronounced. It was called the bima or the judgment seat right outside the gates of the city. They've got them set up at some of the ruins in Israel. You can see them there. The gates of the city functioned as a place where the king would come out of the gates, stand on his little raised platform, the bema, and it was at the gates that he would issue official decrees. So when Jesus says, oh my goodness, when Jesus says the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church... What he's teaching is that the church has been empowered by his victory on the cross to pray in ways that stop the strategies, the councils, and the decrees of hell cold in their tracks. You see, the devil, he has all these little council meetings. He's been plotting to take you down for years, some of you, and you're still here. You know why? Because the church is empowered to say yes to Jesus and... No to the devil to loose the blessing of God and to bind the counsels of hell. And it is your business. If you were a child of God, it is your business to pray in ways that do that. It is your business when you see something in your world or in this world that's not right. It is your business to actually intervene in those situations. You may not be able to pass a law to stop it. You may not be able to get on the media and make much of a dent in it. But you can pray because you are the church and you are called to pray. And when you see something where hell is encroaching on someone or something It is your job, it is your business, it is your privilege, it is in your purview, it is your authority to say, no, devil, and yes, Jesus, no, hell, and yes, heaven, that's your job, that's your privilege as a child of God. It's your calling as a saint of God to pray in ways that bind up hell and loose the blessings of heaven. When you see something that's not what heaven intends, and my goodness, isn't there a lot of that garbage in our world today? When you see something and you know it's not God's will, you can tell from the word of God that it's not God's will. You feel in the spirit that it's not God's will. It is your job to grab hold of that thing in prayer and say, Jesus, your will is not being done. Your will is not being done in our city. Your will is not being done with the politicians. Your will is not being done with what the courts just passed. Your will is not being done in the lives of my children. Your will is not being done in some members of my family. And it's your privilege and your responsibility to take hold of those and hold on to them in passionate persistent insistent prayer until something happens and literally God has empowered the church you you may have missed this in your bible reading but God has empowered the church to take hold of things in prayer and to literally Send them to where they are in line with heaven because right now they're in line with hell. The devil wants your kids to go to an eternal hell with him because he's destined there and he wants to put his slimy fingers on anybody he can and pull them down with him. But when you see that happening, you are empowered by God to say, wait a minute, that's not God's will. Thou shalt be saved and thy house. I will bring your children, your sons from afar Your daughter's from the ends of the earth. That's not God's will. So you take a hold of that and you say, I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to pull on that. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to insist on that. I'm going to intercede over that until it bends into the will of God. You say, Pastor, that sounds exhausting. It is. Because the devil doesn't give up any easier than you give up when you want something. But see, you outrank him. You outclass him. Can I just say it? You outgun the devil. A thousand, a million, a trillion to one. Because guess what? Inside of you is the power of the Holy Ghost. You operate in the authority of the name of Jesus. You are covered with the shed blood of Calvary. You are an apostolic child of God. You are empowered to take hold of it and bend it to the will of God. Yes, yeah, sometimes it takes weeks, months, years. Is it worth it? Talk to anybody who's seen a backslidden child come home. Oh, yes, it's worth it. Talk to anybody who got their miracle after years of thinking it was hopeless. Oh, yes, it's worth it. But every once in a while, you got to just say, no, I refuse that report. No, I refuse that diagnosis. No, I refuse that outcome. No. Every once in a while, you got to pray that short little prayer that is so powerful. Our binding, everybody say no. Yes. And our loosing, everybody say yes. yes. It accomplishes on earth what has already been decreed in heaven. So don't get yourself praying outside of the will of God, outside of the word of God. You know, just because you say Mercedes, 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 Mercedes. That doesn't mean it's going to be in your driveway when you get home. But when you pray according to the word of God, you have the authority of the word to back you up. And so when you pray in accordance with the word of God, our binding, everybody say no, and our loosing, everybody say yes, that accomplishes here on earth what God already decreed in heaven. So it's not you making those things happen. It's your prayers releasing them to happen. That's what it is. It's like the light switch. It is God's power coupled with your participation. It's coupled with your tenacity. I wish we could relearn the word tenacity, a bulldog grip when it comes to prayer. Because we give up far too soon. We give up far too easily. We give up far too early. When God's just saying, just keep praying, church. I'll wind up here tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Three verses that are so packed with revelation and instruction and principles. Paul writes this. For though we walk... In the flesh. You went to work today. You get up with your alarm today. You had a meal with your family today. You walk in the flesh every day. But when it comes to spiritual things, you do not war after the flesh. That's why sometimes you need to shut out all the voices of this world and say no. No. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Here's, how, here's what Paul means. He amplifies it right here. For the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal. That's not where we do our warfare. Your warfare is not a verbal argument with somebody. Your warfare is not winning a debate with somebody. Your warfare is not picking up your computer keyboard or your phone and letting somebody have it on Facebook. Please, Jesus, No. That's not your warfare. Your warfare is not getting on social media and blasting everything about the government and the airlines and the hotels and the politicians and the nurses and the doctors and the COVID people. They're all trying to do their job and they're just human. And they're scared and they're confused. And sometimes they just fumble and bumble their way along. And and can I just say, and I hate to say this because it sounds like I'm defending everybody, but sometimes I think, Uh, If I was in that position, what in the world would I do? And how would I handle it? So I don't know. But here's what I do know. We can pray. That's what I know. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. When you feel that little burst of carnality, and you do, don't go on social media. Throw your phone in the sink of your forgetfulness and go do something else Preferably underwater, and go cool off because your weapons, that's not where we fight. And that's where I think so many Christians get it wrong because they exhaust themselves punching at enemies that if they defeat those enemies, there's still a war. If you you got every politician to line up to your opinion, if you got all of the government and all the schools and all the courts and all the people that are opposed to morality, if you could get them all to line up to your opinion, there would still be a war because the devil's still trying to take people to hell. And if he can't get them through all of that stuff, he'll get them through something else. Now, I've meddled enough, and some of you are getting uncomfortable, and a couple of you are probably starting to hyperventilate. I'm not defending everybody else, and I'm not on one side or the other. I just want, it was a viral video from some pastor in America way back about 12 or 13 months ago. Corona begona. Corona begona. I'm about there. Like, just go away. That wasn't in the notes, and that wasn't inspiration either. That's just me. So I'm not taking a side, I'm just saying if you could get it all fixed to your liking, listen, listen, there's still a war. The war isn't anything you can touch out here. The war isn't any person you can talk to. There's a master puppeteer behind every evil voice, behind every immoral celebrity. There's a, an evil power behind every court that attacks the church and every government that persecutes God's people. It's not them. They're the victims of the devil's scheme. There's still a war if they all lined up to your liking, but you've got to learn how to fight the real war. And Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But here's what they are. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I don't care how long the devil has controlled it, how long he stood on the top of the fortress and said, nobody's coming in here. The weapons of our warfare, they are mighty through God and they can pull down strongholds that the devil has held for years. I want to give somebody hope tonight. I know that your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your siblings, your parents, I know right now they have no interest in God. They oppose you and your stinking little church. They don't like anything that you are or anything that you do. There's a stronghold in their mind against all of this. But the weapons of our warfare in prayer are mighty through God and they're able to pull down strongholds, strong fortresses that have existed for years. And here's how you pull down those strongholds. It takes time. Sometimes it's exhausting and frustrating and you pray and it looks like it's going backwards. But Paul gives us this little plan here. It's like he gives us the method to pull down a stronghold brick by brick by brick. Here's what he says. Three things. Casting down imaginations. Everyone say imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Everyone say high thing. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Everyone say thought. Now, let me be very clear strongholds are not demons, but they are places things in people's spirits and hearts and minds from which demonic forces can influence them or control them. Let me be be very clear here. Just because somebody's opposed to godliness or the Bible or the church doesn't mean they're demon-possessed. They're an innocent victim... But they've got strongholds that the world has taught them, strongholds that the world has exemplified to them, and they just adopted that junk without thinking. So they are not your enemy, Church of God. They are not your enemy. The devil who's behind all that, he's your enemy. Don't fight them, fight him. Don't argue with them. Go into your prayer closet and argue against the devil using the word of God. So we need to pray that three strongholds come crashing down. The first is imaginations. You don't care about this, and really nobody should, but the Greek word is logismos. And, and imaginations, the, the word in English modern would be uh, mindsets. This affects people's intellect, a mindset. And imaginations or a mindset, it's like false reasoning, hostile attitudes, worldly ideas, carnal thinking. And you know that everybody that has a YouTube or a Facebook account, they're exposed to all kinds of hateful, vile, immoral, antagonistic ideas all the time. The racism and the prejudice and the hatred and the violence that's in our world. It comes because people have adopted these mindsets, these hostile attitudes. And you can argue with them all day long. I wouldn't waste my time or my breath because that's a stronghold. The best way to tear down a stronghold is not to go one-on-one, face-to-face, fists flying, tempers raging, blood pressure sky high. That's not the way to do that. You go into your prayer closet, and because you love that person, you start tearing that mindset, that hostile attitude, start tearing it down brick by brick by brick. And then Paul said, you need to tear this one down. It's called high things. The Greek term is hupsoma. It's literally pride. And pride, more than anything else, affects the human will. This is human arrogance, human self-sufficiency, an elevated sense of one's own opinion. My goodness, we've overdosed on that in 2021 everybody's got their own slant on everything from the news to the government to everything else and they are acid against everything else they've just bought into this thing and and have you noticed this phrase floating around well that's your truth that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life that's your truth well you can't argue with them because that's their truth That's like saying that's their reality. They think that they're floating four feet off the ground. We can see that they're not, but they think they are. You don't have a version of truth. There's God's truth, and then there's everything else. But the way to have that discussion is to not have that discussion. Go to your prayer closet for somebody that has bought in to their own self-sufficiency and their own will and their own pride. And they're so arrogant against God and Christianity that if you're not careful, you can go to the opposite extreme because it almost turns your stomach. Can I tell us that apostolics shouldn't be haters of anybody? Apostolics shouldn't be haters of anybody on social media we shouldn't be haters of anybody that has an alternative lifestyle we shouldn't be haters of anybody that disagrees with us morally or any other way we are not haters we love people because jesus said by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another and god says in his word god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If he loved him that much, I think we probably should love him. So the way to have the discussion about their, uh, their arrogance and their pride is not to look at them and say, you're so proud and full of yourself. That's not going to work. Go to your prayer closet where you can do a great work in the spirit and pray for that person that God himself will bring them to themselves. The prodigal son had it big and wild and crazy for a limited time because he left father's house. He had all the blessings God had put on his life and he just thought it was all about himself. And boy, he partied down for a while. But the circumstances of his life changed and God humbled him and he came back to father's house. You have that battle in your closet of prayer Listen to pastor, not in your living room, not at your kitchen table, not on social media, have that battle in your prayer closet. And finally, Paul says, casting down imaginations. You got to do that first. You go after mindsets, which affects their intellect. And it's it's full of all kinds of false ideas, but, but start pulling that down and go after high things. That's their pride. That's their stubborn will go after that. And then he says, and thoughts, the, the, the Greek term is noema, And it, 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 it affects people's emotions. And really, it's like, uh, the best way I can describe it, it's random thoughts that come into their mind. It's like spontaneous temptations, spontaneous things where the devil just kind of, he prods them like a puppet, and they just yield. It's random thoughts. It's mental perceptions. It's blindness to truth. That's why in an otherwise normal city in North America, one verdict, one uh, political something, one unfortunate event can just set a whole city on edge. We've seen that a thousand times, it feels like, in the last year. And I'm not taking sides on any of those issues. There's wrong, there's lots of blame to go around. But the spirit of violence and the spirit of hatred and the spirit. See, if you watch how fast that occurs. Uh, Brother Scott's here tonight. Where did I see him? Curtis and Amanda. Wonderful missionaries to the country of Pakistan. In the Muslim world, because of the darkness of that religion, they can tell you things can turn on a dime just whoom and you go from relatively peaceful, everybody's fine, and all of a sudden you're in a life-threatening riot that engulfs a, a neighborhood or a city. And it, you just think, where did this come from? The devil, he just, he just puts random thoughts. He, he just sends random temptations. And people, because they have no defense, they have no good shepherd, And so they just yield it. There's no good shepherd to say, no, that's not the way we do it. So you attack those. You you go after imaginations and high things and thoughts. You go after the mindsets and the pride and the temptations that are affecting people, that, that are troubling their intellect and their will and their emotions, and you pull them down. How do you pull down strongholds? One very simple prayer. No, no, devil, you are not going to control my kids with that false idea. I'm going to pray until there's an old song we used to say. I'm going to pray until I pray your kingdom down. That's the spirit you've got to have. I want to say and I want to pray. No. Now, I'll give you the bad news and then the good news. The bad news is this is warfare. So the devil just doesn't go, oh, they prayed. See ya. He's not that stupid. It's warfare. You got to keep at it. You may have to counterattack. You may have to come back and press from another angle. But the Bible does say the gates of hell, the councils and the strategies, all the plans of hell, they shall not prevail against the church of the living God. It is warfare. So don't give up just because it goes backwards for a month or two, don't give up. And if the situation or that person, if they continue to resist and you're thinking, I'm praying, but it seems to be in reverse. I'm praying, but I don't see any results. I'm praying. I'm just going to give you this. This isn't a series about this, but I'll just give you this. Fasting is like using your own body as an exclamation point at the end of a prayer because sometimes Jesus said these come not out but by prayer and fasting. So what I'm telling you is every once in a while you just got to go to your prayer closet and turn up the heat on the devil instead of letting him turn up the heat on you and you run. You're not supposed to be running from the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the key word there is the first word. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Resistance doesn't happen because you woke up one morning and thought, this is going to be a delightful day. Sometimes you got to go to your knees and you got to resist him. You have been empowered. You normal, everyday New Brunswick people. God looks at you different than everybody around you looks at you. God looks at you different than maybe you look at yourself in the mirror. God looks at you and he sees an agent of his kingdom on this earth. An agent that is empowered by the covenant of God's word to say no or yes. Binding or loosing. You can bind sickness. You can bind attacks of temptation. You can bind all kinds of strategies of hell. But don't forget that on the other hand, you can loose the blessings of God. You can loose God's presence in your life. It all comes down to who you say no to and who you say yes to. Don't just pray yes every once in a while. You got to pray no. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil no jesus be my good shepherd and when your word says no i'm gonna agree and i'm saying no because if the shepherd ever tells you no it's for your blessing my goodness i felt the undergirding power of the Holy Ghost while I've been teaching you wonderful people tonight. I, I'd like you to just kind of lift up your hands and everything you got right now for a moment. And, and you, know what situa- you know what situation came into your mind. You know what person's name came into your mind. You know what family member came into your mind. You know while pastor was teaching tonight, you know exactly what popped into your head. That's not an accident. You're the on-site observer of your situation. You're the on-site representative of heaven in your family. So what you need to do is say, God, your will's not being done in this situation. So I say no to the devil's strategy and I say yes to heaven. I wonder if I could get some apostolic people to just lift up your voice for a moment and just pray. Somebody, you need to just ramp it up a little bit. I know the devil's been giving you grief. I know the devil's been pushing you back. I know the devil's been telling you this is never going to work and it's all just in your head. But the devil's a liar and he always has been a liar. And the word of God says the strategies, the gates of hell, the plans of hell cannot prevail against you because you are in God's church so I just want to turn somebody on to this little truth you have the power to say no absolutely not devil this far but no further I push you back in the name of Jesus